Good morning, Matt Gav family. It's good to see you all again. Thank you to the worship team. Uh, again, just a, a perfectly chosen uh, last song for our sermon today. I'm grateful for how you've led us in worship this morning. Uh, again, my name is Jonathan Demers, and I'm privileged to serve as one of the elders here at Mac. Uh, I've been a member here for a long time and just have so many good things to say about our church, and I'm so grateful for the ways that many of you have ministered to me and, and served my family. Uh, and so I just consider it a privilege to learn alongside you and with you um, as we uh, travel through Paul's uh, passage today. Uh, and we are coming back to Philippians. Uh, the last two weeks, we've been focused more on Easter. Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Leon preached on Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphant arrival in Jerusalem. Uh, and then last week, Pastor Leon spoke on Easter, uh, and we had an outdoor service. Uh, but the week before those two, I was fortunate to preach uh, on the beginning of Philippians 2, and specifically on the subject of unity. Uh, and today's sermon is going to be focused on the subject of humility. And I'm just so grateful that I had the chance to be able to preach the kind of bookend sermons around Easter because unity and humility are critical parts of what occurs in Easter. Uh, our unity in Christ is made possible by Christ's humility. Unity is what Jesus came and died for. He died to sanctify a community of people that would live together in a way that testified to his lordship. And humility, today's sermon subject, is the secret ingredient to that Christian unity. It explains why Jesus embraced the cross, uh, and it strengthens us to carry our own crosses. Uh, and so today's passage is going to be Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Thank you to Charles and Tamara for reading it for us. Um, scholars often refer to this as the Christ hymn. That's a phrase you'll hear me uh, say a lot because it's poetic in nature. It's also often referred to as a kind of master story to Paul's teaching. It, it informs so much of the way that he presents God's truth in his epistles. Uh, and so I'm really excited to unpack this passage. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, and we're going to organize the sermon into four different parts. First, focusing on unity, then on victory, uh, then humility, and then idolatry. Uh, a few just quick reminders, just how we do sermons here at Mac. Um, you are welcome to ask questions at any point during the sermon today. That goes for you guys here that are present. Just raise your hand, and I'll repeat the question to everybody. Um, or those at home, if you can just put your question in the chat, I'll be glancing down from time to time, um, and I would love to answer your questions for all of us uh, to the extent that I can. Um, and if I can't, I would love to talk to you more about it afterwards. Um, also, I make my full notes available after the sermon, so if you'd like to take notes, that's fine, but if you'd like the relief of just being able to sit and listen and, you know, to go back to pretty exhaustive notes um, after the fact, they're going to be posted to our website, um, and I'd be happy to share a copy with you as well. Uh, and then lastly, this is really important for me, I'll be available afterwards to talk about the sermon, I'll be on the Zoom calls, um, I'll be here in the building for those of you that are here as well. Um, but last time I preached a few weeks ago, I got a lot of feedback, um, encouraging, you know, constructive criticism, um, lots of just really good thoughts and wrestling through what Christian unity really means, um, particularly coming out of this past year. And I, I love that. I, I want to wrestle through these passages with you all. I want to hear about how you're encouraged or how you're challenged or the questions that you have. Um, and so if you would like to, you know, process that with me further, uh, I don't bite. I, I like to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, and I've had folks over to my house, and um, we just love wrestling through these things. So please let me know, um, and I would love to talk about this further. Um, so with that, let's pray. Father, uh, Kristen just really welcomed us into this time of worship so well, and I, I echo so much of what she said. And, and I echo, too, the song that they sang. Though you were rich, you became poor. You died that we might live. You poured out your soul even to death. That is the exact language from our passage today in Philippians 2. And when we read this passage, Father, we are tempted to look at Jesus' sacrifice and say, for what good did it accomplish? That's certainly what the world says. That's certainly what the world was saying to the Philippians at the time. What kind of a God gets crucified? What kind of a God is that? Father, we know what kind of God you are. In fact, you revealed the fullness of your character in that decision to lower yourself, to take on the likeness of us humans, to empty yourself of all your divine privileges and to bear a humiliating and excruciating death on a cross 
And because of that, Father, we know that you have been super exalted to the highest of heavens and that we sit with you, as Paul says in Ephesians, in the heavenlies because of that. Father, would you teach us how to get past all of the distractions and the idolatries of our our culture here in Detroit and in America that teach us that the way to succeed in this world is to chase comfort, to chase power, uh, to chase after control of our life. And let us instead keep our eyes fixed on you, the one who gave up control, the one who gave up power, and adopt those values and ways of thinking into our lives, Lord. The the implications for what we're going to read today are, are so expansive, Father, and I can't even begin to try to preach all the ways that we could apply this to our individual lives. But but you can be that guide, Father. Let your word be that guide. Show us where we need to embrace these cruciform, these cross-shaped patterns of living in our lives as a community and as individuals, Father. Amen. So I was tempted to open today's sermon with a picture of the Boston Red Sox new uniforms. Um, I am a diehard Boston sports fan, um, but I saved you the the horror of looking at these new uniforms because the Boston Red Sox now have yellow and aqua blue uniforms. Uh, Kevin King and I were talking about this recently. Kevin's a huge baseball fan, much bigger fan than I, and also clearly has more refined taste, because I think the uniforms are grotesque. They look like something uh, from like a cheap screen shop store that was bought at a discount. Uh, but that's, that's just me. I have strong opinions, apparently, about uniforms and, and logos. Uh, and you're probably asking, well, what does this have to do with Philippians? Uh, well, I want to ask you, and you're welcome to put this in the chat, but when you think about symbols or, or logos, like a sports team's uniform, what would you consider to be the logo or the symbol of Christianity? And I think coming out of Easter especially, most of us would agree or think of the cross. The cross for well over a thousand years has been the symbol of Christianity. Um, But it wasn't always the case. That wasn't always how things were. Christians had to be a lot more careful about how they revealed themselves. Initially, it was kind of this sign of peace that they would use with their hands, um, or they would use an inscription of a fish um, secretly or kind of strategically placed. Today, of course, now we see these fish on people's cars. Um, but, but the cross was not a welcome symbol uh, to the rest of society. In a Roman culture that was consumed by honor and accomplishment, the idea that the Christian God had lost to the Roman Empire on the cross was an idea that made the cross kind of a hard thing to swallow and not something that Christians proudly put out because it was a kind of stumbling block to society. That changed in 4th century AD when the Roman Emperor Constantine became the head of the Roman Empire. Uh, Into his reign, he claimed to have had a vision um, of a cross imposed over the sun. And in that vision, he heard declared to him, uh, in this sign, you, Constantine, will conquer. And that's precisely what he did. He, as many Roman emperors before and after him, conquered. But in so doing, he nationalized the Christian religion. He popularized the cross. It became more familiar, more common. And for the first time, Christianity was no longer a persecuted faith in the Roman Empire. The problem was it was also no longer countercultural. It was watered down. And it became a tool in the hands of the empire to accomplish a lot of evil and a lot of violence. In fact, Constantine took the cross and emblazoned it on Roman shields so that by the time they were fighting wars on their eastern and western fronts, the cross, the sign of God's humility, was actually the last thing many people would see before they faced their death. The image of the cross continues to serve the interests of of the powerful and violent as history goes on. We know this as the European crusaders traveled down to Palestine on holy wars, to enact divine judgment against people they perceived to be as infidels. And these crusaders carried on their armor and their shields and their breastplates images of the cross. They saw themselves as fulfilling a divine prerogative to go and take back the Holy Land. And they did. In the 11th century, they took Jerusalem and they killed every woman and child in that city. 
But let's be clear, this abuse of the cross away from its peaceful roots to mutation of an object of violence is not just in the past. It's something in the present today. We know this because we see how white supremacist terror groups use a burning cross to intimidate and commit hate crimes against all sorts of people in this country. So how did we get here? In the early years of the church, Paul and Jesus' disciples, many of whom were themselves crucified and killed for their faith, taught that the cross didn't represent an act of, of violence or power. It was an act of love, salvation, and more than that, humility. But over time, it's clearly been mutated and abused into a symbol of violence and hatred and abusive power. And in my opinion, that is not a coincidence. We have to be clear about this. When Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that he made a mockery of Satan and the powers. That his willing death on the cross completely flipped everything that had been set up in the world. God giving up his life to save someone else. The powers in Satan, scripture teaches us, shape the world in a different direction. They teach us the opposite, to exploit our powers for our own advantage. But Christ, he did the opposite. So I think it should come as no surprise then that Satan and the powers would try to take the symbol of their humiliation and twist it in a way so that this humble moment becomes a violent moment, justifying further violence. Even still, though, I wonder if we understand why the cross is so threatening to Satan and these powers right now. I think when you and I think about the cross, we see it as a tool by God used to save us, a convenient altar where Jesus' blood was shed to pay the ransom for our sins. And I'm not saying that isn't true. That, that is certainly true, but it's incomplete. The cross isn't just the means by which we're saved. The cross and what Jesus did by embracing it defines the whole way that we're supposed to live out our Christian faith. People of the resurrection must also be people of the cross. We must walk the extra mile, turn the other cheek, love our enemies, pray for our persecutors, and wash the feet of our betrayers. And nobody exemplified this better than Jesus, and there was no single moment which best exemplified all of that than when he willingly went to death on a Roman cross. That, that is what Paul meant when he said to the Corinthians that he resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. Said concisely, the cross for us is supposed to be both the source and the shape of our faith. Here's what I mean. I think many of us get the first part. I think we get more intuitively that the cross is the source of our salvation. It's how we get saved. But I think we struggle to grasp that second part, that Jesus' embrace of the cross should shape the way we live out our faith. So what an apt time then for us to study this master story, this Christ hymn that Paul presents in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Uh, and that's where we're going to turn. But before we go right to that verse, I just want to remind us briefly uh, in this first section of the sermon on unity and the context um, of the passage and the Christ hymn. This is what we talked about last time I preached, this uh, section from Philippians 1, 2, 27 to 2, 4, where at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of Philippians 2, Paul exhorts and instructs the Philippian Christians toward a unity that's based in Christ's humility. Paul wants to see the Philippians remember, first and foremost, that they are the citizens of God's kingdom, not just the Roman Empire, and that because of that, they can sh face their shared persecution together as a single unified community and even see that suffering as a privilege, as an opportunity to suffer under uh, Christ's own sufferings. But embracing suffering for the Philippians was incredibly countercultural. Their whole surrounding culture was consumed by the pursuit of success and accomplishment, and Paul is directly confronting that chase, instructing the local church to embrace Christ's cross-shaped or cruciform posture, rejecting any motivation that comes from conceit or vanity or selfish interests, and instead treating the needs of others as of greater importance than their own. Paul went to great lengths, and we talked about this last time, to teach what seems like a pretty straightforward teaching. If you want to be unified, you have to be humble. But he did that because he recognized how insidious and deceptive sin is. For Paul, confronting something as familiar and all-consuming as this Roman culture of honor-seeking would be like trying to convince a fish that water is wet. 
Paul knew that these cultural deceptions were cutting out the church's unity in Philippi. Its individual members had become so caught up in their own honor-seeking and comfort-chasing that they had begun to forget the very life-giving, self-emptying practices that had welcomed them into the faith in the first place. But Paul doesn't just talk about unity in this part of Philippians. It's a major theme throughout all of his letters and throughout all of Scripture. And last time in our previous sermon, we focused on four different images of unity. We saw in John 17, where Jesus is praying for his future disciples to experience a kind of Christian unity found in the Trinity that would produce supernatural, inexplicable love and direct all of the attention of creation back to its creator. We also saw in 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul taught unity is not uniformity and that just as the body needs all of its limbs and organs, so too must a diverse Christian community embrace unity without denying difference. In Ephesians 2, we saw how Paul explained that Christ's death on the cross achieved vertical reconciliation between us and God, but also horizontal reconciliation. Paul says that Christ's death tore down the wall of dividing hostility between former enemies. And then finally, in Revelation 7, we saw the fourth image of unity, this great communal act of worship and affirmation of who God was. And we saw that it occurred where all these tribes, language, peoples, and nations gather together. That moment of worship occurred not in spite of, but because of the still intact cultural and ethnic diversity of the worshipers. All of that taken together, I think we can say that Christian unity, what we're supposed to reflect as a church here at Mac, is supposed to be the proof that God was victorious in Christ. When we love and worship together as a diverse, reconciled community, we stand like a bright lit billboard to the world and to the powers, it says in Ephesians, proclaiming publicly that Jesus' reign has broken through creation's sin-sick bondage and put down roots. Conversely, if we live individual and communal lives that are centered around selfish ambition and conceit, we hide our light under a bushel, like the song says. We rebuke Jesus' prayers in John 17 for us, and we just reinforce Satan's grip over creation. And so my challenge to us at that sermon was to try to embrace two basic practical applications that we see modeled by Paul, being both prophetic, truth-telling, and empathetic, or exhibiting grace and truth together and toward each other. Paul is himself deeply empathetic, patient, and caring as a guide, but he's also a confrontational, firm, and consistent truth-teller. For some of us at Mac, we have got to get past our non-confrontational preferences and learn to speak plainly about the injustices of this country and the sinful history of American Christianity. And we need to do that for the sake of the health and well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. For others of us, though, at Mac, we need to be much quicker to listen and much slower to speak. Mindful of the Christian teaching that all humans are capable of redemption and aware that we should be willing to extend to others the same patience and empathy that others have given to us. Prophetic truth-telling and empathetic grace. What is the secret ingredient to both of these habits? Humility. And that's why Paul turns to Jesus to illustrate this idea in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. And as you turn to that passage, and I encourage you to do so, we will have it up on a slide. I want to start by going back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus Christ crucified. I decided to know nothing among you, he says. That's a remarkable statement. When he says to know here, he doesn't mean just like intellectual head knowledge like you get from school. He, he's talking about the experience of living something out in word and deed, to know fully. So what he's saying then is that it's okay to reduce everything he's ever taught, everything he's ever presented to the early church into the box of Christ's crucifixion. That's an incredible statement considering everything that Paul has taught. And yet in Christ's crucifixion, Paul says that the manifold power and wisdom of God is revealed. Paul believes this even though he's fully aware that Jesus' death contradicted the values of the surrounding culture and made it hard to swallow. In that era, 
the power of one's God was associated with the success of him and his followers in the world. So there's no room in that culture for the idea of God getting crucified. And beyond that, in the Jewish culture as well, the idea of the Messiah being crucified confounded the Jews. Paul acknowledges this in his epistles when he says that his identification with a crucified Messiah left him and his ministry partners looking like fools for the sake of Christ. It wasn't even conceivable to the Pharisees that the Messiah would suffer death at all, and certainly not death cursed on a tree, as the law speaks to in Deuteronomy. But none of that stopped Paul from reconfiguring his own beliefs and seeing Jesus' crucifixion as becoming a curse for us and redeeming creation in the process. But still, given that cultural context, I think we can start to see why Paul spends so much time breaking down the importance of Christ's death on the cross. How in the world could Paul claim to follow the one true God while he was sitting in a Roman jail cell, bound up in chains, and writing to an increasingly persecuted Philippian church? Everything that the Philippians had ever been taught as kids in these Roman and Jewish cultures suggested that they were not on the winning side, that they were on the losing side. This was a kind of doubt-inducing, soul-shaking fear that prompted Paul to include the Christ hymn in the first place. And so I want to read the passage together, uh, particularly this translation of the passage by Dr. Michael Gorman, which I think really brings out some of the strongest themes from the letter. It says, cultivate this mindset in your community, which is a community in Christ Jesus, who, although being in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited for his own advantage, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, that is, by being born in the likeness of human beings. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a Roman cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the title that is above every title, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend, yes, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is the universal Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So when we examine this passage, there's a pattern here that many others have pointed out. This is not original to me. But it's a, a V-shaped trajectory that we see in Jesus' victory in this passage. The first step is Jesus relinquishing his divine privileges and refusing to take advantage of them for his own gain. The second step is Jesus willingly descending into human suffering and embracing the Roman cross. But then the third step is Jesus' exaltation. As a result of his faithful suffering at the bottom, Jesus is super exalted as the Lord over all creation. Now I'm pointing this out because this isn't just some kind of pattern that Bible nerds spotted. It's a way of thinking and living that Paul is calling the Philippians to embrace in their own lives. He says this in verse 5. The Christ hymn is intended to define the way that the Philippians relate to each other. Said another way, when we faithfully deny ourselves and carry our crosses like Jesus commands, we find ourselves, as it says in Ephesians, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. This V-shaped pattern of living that the Philippians have apparently knew are now they are starting to forget. They were blessed by it, but they seem to be abandoning it. And so we're going to look at each of these steps here briefly uh, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, starting with verses 5 and 6, the beginning of the V-shaped victory, where Jesus refuses to exploit his divine privilege. Note how Paul opens verse 5 with a statement about the Philippians' perspective. He says, have toward one another the same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. And what was that attitude? In many of your translations, you'll probably see Paul say something like equality with God as being something to be grasped or to be held. And that's a really literal translation, the idea of grasping equality with God. Readers, though, would have understood the Greek word that Paul used to mean that Jesus didn't consider his divine privileges as something to be hoarded or something to be exploited for selfish gain, or something to be taken advantage of just for himself. That's also why Paul used the Greek word hyparchon, translated as although, or because in verse 5. Paul's saying that although Jesus possessed all of this divine power and privilege, he humbled himself. And that is so clearly counterintuitive 
not just to us, but to the Philippians in this incredible and all-consuming Roman honor culture. Nobody just gives up privileges and power. Rulers of that era certainly did not. They openly set themselves apart from their subjects, hoarded their power, and only gave it away to people in their descendant line. And yet, even though Jesus possessed far greater power than those rulers and had every right to use it for his own advantage, he chose not to. He never considered his existence as God something to be hoarded for his own gain and exploited. Instead, he gave up those privileges for the sake of his enemies, even as scripture says they were still far off. Unlike the way we humans behave, exploiting whatever advantage we can, Jesus does the opposite. And a professor and friend of mine said it really well. Jesus expended himself, pouring himself out like a drink offering, embarking on a downward trajectory that took him from the absolute cosmic heights to the lowest possible place. And so for Paul, Jesus' loose-handed mentality toward his privilege and status and reputation was the antidote, the antidote to the Philippian church, what they needed to cleanse themselves from this infectious disease that was stemming from the all-consuming Roman honor culture and leading them to lose their unity. That takes us to the next step in the V-shaped victory, where we see Jesus willingly embracing the Roman cross. In verse 7, Paul begins charting Jesus' humble descent, starting with Jesus' transformation from the highest thinkable role to the lowest. But let's be clear here, because this has created some confusion in the past. Jesus is not divesting himself of his divinity. He is still fully God and fully man. That's not a question here. The focus of what Paul is getting at is about how his position changed, how he goes from being one who had every right to be served by creation to becoming a servant of all. Jesus became human in basically every way you can think. He grew up, he learned and acquired skills, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he celebrated, he wept, he feared, and he died, just like any other human being. That's why the author of Hebrews says that he is our great high priest who can also sympathize with our weaknesses and that when we approach him, because he can sympathize with us, we know we can receive grace and mercy in our time of need. But we see in verse 8 that Jesus didn't just descend into human likeness. He descended even further. Having been found in the likeness of man, Paul says, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. The key observation here is that Jesus wasn't humiliated by some outside force. He humbled himself. Paul uses the Greek word tapeno, translated here as humbled, even though it literally means to lower oneself vertically to drop. And Paul is using that specific Greek word to show that Jesus didn't get lowered, he self-lowered. And into what did Jesus lower himself? Death on a Roman cross. And here's the thing, I think we are so familiar with the Roman cross at this point that we don't really get just how Paul's emphasis on it clashed with Roman and Jewish conceptions of God. It was astonishing to make such a big deal about the fact that Jesus willingly embraced the cross. In Roman culture, crucifixion was Rome's most brutal and intimidating instrument of power and political control. It was described by the historian Josephus as the most miserable of deaths, and the historian Cicero as the worst extreme of torture. All Roman subjects knew of the terror of the cross because crucified criminals were always hung publicly. And in that sense, they didn't just die from the pain and suffering they uh, experienced, but they died by humiliation. This was the empire's way of handling those who were perceived to be a threat to the Pax Romana or the peace and security of Rome. And so the idea that the one true God would be subjected to this kind of public shame and death was ludicrous to Romans. And for Jews, for the Jewish people, any person hung on a tree to die was considered cursed under their law. And so it was conceivable to any Jew, whether they were learned like a Pharisee or relatively unlearned, to think that the long-promised Messiah would be anything but completely and overwhelmingly triumphant. That meant it was absurd, and not just absurd, but deeply offensive for Paul and the early church to make a crucified political criminal the focus of their faith and the cross 
as a kind of way of thinking about how to live out that faith. This was what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians as the stumbling block and foolishness that we've talked about already. And yet, despite all those cultural obstacles, despite all the confusion that that creates, Jesus embraces the cross. Paul emphasizes this. He describes Christ's brave and humble conduct as both approved by and obedient to God the Father, all throughout Philippians 1, Philippians 4, and in Philippians 2. We can see this clear link between Jesus' behavior and God's approval of it. This also brings to mind Jesus' posture in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his brutal death. We remember this, right? Jesus praying, so stressed, so fearful. The scriptures say he was actually sweating blood. And Jesus says, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. I know this. Please remove this cup of death from me. And yet even in that pleading, Jesus concludes his prayer by saying, yet not what I want, Father, but what you want. When Jesus accepts this cup of death, even death on a publicly humiliating Roman cross, he is being faithful to the role of Messiah. He isn't contradicting it. And as Christian communities today, when we embrace behaviors that the world thinks is foolish or are humiliating, we become like dry riverbeds through which the power of God can course like water. The same divine power that resurrected Jesus from the dead made a mockery of the powers, and the Bible says lives inside of you and I today. So that brings us to the third part of this V-shaped victory now, Jesus' super exaltation, seen in verses 9 to 11. And having seen Jesus lowering himself to the deepest depths one can go, from the highest heights that somebody could possibly begin, note how Paul describes the Father's response. This is where the trajectory comes back up, even though the cross should have been where the story ended. And this is critical. It's because Jesus referred, refused to exploit his privileges and because he utterly spends himself on behalf of us in faithfulness to God that the Father responds by exalting Jesus to the highest place. Paul chose his words so carefully throughout Philippians, including in this instance. He actually takes two Greek words, hyper, which means high, and hoopso, which means exalt, and combines it into a single verb, literally meaning super exalt, or lifting someone to the highest possible position. That means that when Jesus was lifted up on the Roman cross for the purpose of shaming him publicly and humiliating him, the Father responds by receiving and embracing Jesus, not with shame, but with love and approval, declaring that he is well-pleased. In a very real sense, Paul is saying that God is overruling Rome's damnation of Jesus by vindicating him and honoring him with the very same heavenly status that Jesus had given up before. And at this super exaltation, Paul says that every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, making this not just a victory for our individual lives and our individual salvation as we like to think of it, but a cosmic, creation-wide victory. It's the beginning of what Jesus describes in the Gospel of Matthew as the renewal of all things. It's the vision of hope we read about in Isaiah, where the ends of the earth turn back to God. It's the first fruits of the new heavens and new earth promised to us in Revelation. And we know that at the fulfillment of this great redeeming work, when all the wrongs are righted, when death itself is defeated by the Lamb who was slain, every created beating, being will worship God. Even the angels and the demons will bow before the crucified one. And that is why Paul says at the end of the Christ hymn, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Now again, why did that occur? How is it that Jesus manages to completely upend the way things are supposed to be in this world, the, the cosmic power structure? How did he get super exalted by giving up his life? It's not in spite of the cross, but because of the cross. It's because he was fully obedient, faithful, long-suffering, and humble. So now I want to turn to the next section of our sermon, humility. From here, we have to ask ourselves, Paul is commanding us to ask ourselves, how do we respond to this instruction and begin to behave in our lives in a way that reflects the Christ hymn? As with the Sermon on Unity, I think we can begin with Paul himself. Because even as Paul modeled the balance of grace and truth that's needed for Christian unity, he is also, in my opinion, an excellent case study in practicing cruciformity. 
And I've used this term before, and I just want to be clear about what it means. Cruciformity just means the shape of the cross. It's a way of summing up the Christ hymn into a single word, a way of talking about Jesus' refusal to take advantage of all his privileges and instead empty himself to restore and unify creation. And as we see in Jesus, God makes his strength perfect in this pattern of cruciform or cross-shaped weakness. Cruciformity, then, is just the way of thinking that forced Paul to reorient his whole life. And it truly did. And I don't want to rush past that. I think it's really difficult for us to imagine just how much this upside-down way of thinking had completely wrecked Paul's entire belief system and identity. Recall that prior to his encounter with Jesus, Paul would have been baffled at best or infuriated at worst by Jesus' ministry. Serves him right, Paul might have scoffed. What an irresponsible and unrealistic and foolish teacher, he might have said after learning that Jesus died. Paul was a high-ranking Pharisee. He, he was consumed with doing whatever it took to restore God's holiness so that God would respond to that holiness by bringing his resurrection and restoration to the world. Jesus was a false prophet to Paul. He had hindered Paul's mission and the mission of the Pharisees to bring in God's holiness. Paul probably often asked himself, what good would loving enemies do to bring about this resurrection? How does praying for Romans do any good? How does welcoming sinners or eating with outcasts get them to repent and become Torah observant? And so when Jesus died and he no longer hindered the Pharisees' mission, that just meant one less obstacle to God's work. That was Paul's view when his name was Saul until his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. The Bible says that even while he was still breathing threats and murder against disciples of the Lord, and while he was on his way to engage in even more violent persecution, Paul then is confronted by Jesus in a flash of light and left blind. It's only after three days and the risky hospitality of a couple of Christians that Paul is able to see again. And God later declares in that passage that the newly named Paul, no longer Saul, shall be an instrument to bring God's name to the world. And in accomplishing that mission, he would suffer much for God's name. Paul hadn't just been blinded physically. He began to realize that his entire ministry had been blind to the truth and that the crucified suffering Jesus was the Messiah, was the king, and that Paul was being called to suffer alongside him as well. That completely changed everything for Paul. What we often overlook is that Paul realizes that his violent and forceful and coercive tactics, along with his pursuit of titles and prestige and accomplishments, had set him in opposition to God. God's ways were completely different. They weren't wrapped up in those things. Paul had become so consumed with preserving the holiness of God's people and, and trying to conjure it up himself so that God would return, that he had gone so far as to justify an idolatry of power and prestige that led him to engage in all these pursuits of accomplishment and even deadly persecution. Paul had seen himself as an agent of resurrection when he was, in fact, an instrument of death. The long-awaited resurrection, resurrection had even already arrived in Jesus, and it was springing up in the very Christian communities that he was trying to wipe out. Paul realized that if God's people wanted to continue to experience that resurrection power, they had to abandon the methods of coercion and prestige that he had embraced and adopt cruciform or cross-shaped patterns and habits so that they might learn to suffer as Jesus had and, as a result, experience the resurrection power of God through their suffering. And so because of this, Paul completely changes both his teaching and his ministry approach. Paul uses the word cross, the Greek term staros, in about half of his epistles, and almost no other New Testament author even uses the word. Paul is the one who really brings the idea of the cross to bear on Christian teaching and practice. He says in Galatians that he rejects any glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. To the world, he says, the cross is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But Paul doesn't just talk about the word cross. He is a master of linking the cross and its implications to the everyday practices and lives of his kingdom siblings. Paul helps the Corinthians recapture a righteous perspective on communion by reminding them that it is the way that we proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Communion is supposed to proclaim the crucifixion of Christ. In Ephesians, Paul speaks about how Jesus' death on the cross tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Greeks and other generational enemies. Paul urges his readers all throughout his epistles to embrace their weaknesses as disciples of Jesus were treasures in fragile jars of clay who in their weakness revealed the surpassing power of God. They were afflicted in every way, but not crushed, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul knew personally the sufferings that Christians endured and the temptation that they felt from the culture around them to give up on the harder way and to take a path of comfort. And he knew that uh, he had seen that if God's people forget to embrace these cruciform habits and to take the easy way out, trouble would follow and their witness would be tarnished. But Paul's teaching wasn't the only thing that was transformed. His whole approach to ministry was as well. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked it. And under the shadow of the cross, Paul's entire outlook on his life transformed. Prior to encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul had centered his whole identity on prestige and accolades and his clean Jewish bloodline. He described himself as properly circumcised, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, a prominent student under the widely respected Pharisee Gamaliel, a zealous Pharisee, blameless under the law, and a Hebrew of Hebrews. We'll see this later in Philippians 3. Paul had previously believed that it was the sinners who were standing in the way of God saving Israel. The tax collectors, the Roman collaborators, the sexually promiscuous, they were the ones who were preventing God from unleashing his resurrection life on creation. And Jesus was a kind of ultimate sinner and therefore was cursed by God to hang on a tree. That was Paul's thinking before the road to Damascus and how he lived his life. But after he encounters the crucified and resurrected Jesus, his whole identity is wrecked and rebuilt. Once the persecutor of these sinners... Paul now begins to refer to himself as foremost among the sinners. Once proud of his hard-fought accomplishments, Paul says he considers them nothing but rubbish. Once proud of his identity as an accomplished Pharisee and a leader among the Pharisees, Paul begins to arrange himself as a co-laborer and even a servant to others like Timothy and Epaphroditus, mentioned later in this book of Philippians. Paul didn't immediately just embrace all of this. It was incredibly discouraging for him and uncomfortable. He pleads for deliverance from the suffering he endures. And Jesus replies to his pleading, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. This is in 2 Corinthians 12. Yes, this was probably really frustrating for Paul, who had so much comfort and success in his former life. At one point, he describes his suffering as an unrelenting messenger of Satan that felt like a thorn in his flesh that he couldn't remove. And yet Paul learns over time to declare that if I must boast, he says, I will boast only in the things that show my weakness. For Christ's sake, I am content with my weakness, he says, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a transformation for Paul. What a model for us as we investigate and confront our own idolatries and our own screwed up thinking. That brings us to the next part of the sermon, this idea of idolatry, which is in and of itself a threat to unity and cruciformity. Here's what I mean. When we're confronted with the cross, Paul chooses to embrace it, but many others do not. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the danger if we get this wrong and don't embrace the cross as a way of living our lives? What's the harm if we as a Christian community just kind of tiptoe around Paul's example pick and choose from it like a buffet, compromise for our comfort's sake, and given the to the temptation to be another well-meaning community that really is just more concerned about our own needs, comfort, and influence. What if we try to make our strength perfect rather than allowing God's strength to be made perfect in our weakness? In my opinion, family, our gospel witness would be fundamentally compromised. It would be lost. It would become idolatry. And we know this. We know that this is true because the early church saw it. They saw it in the intersectional strife that Paul had to confront in all of his epistles. Jews and Greeks, slave and free, men and women, constantly in conflict. 
They saw it in the Jerusalem church's embrace of blatant favoritism toward the wealthy and honorable in the book of James, while ignoring the poor and the downtrodden. The early church saw it again when Christian brothers and sisters hoarded their resources and shrouded their covetousness in lies. And they saw it in the rich Christians in Corinth, gorging themselves at the communion table, getting drunk and stuffed while the poorer Christians were left to feed on table scraps. In each of those instances, early Christian communities exchanged the cruciform pattern of Jesus' humility for the corrupting idolatry of power and control. And God took those matters so seriously to the point that he killed some of those rich Corinthian gluttons, and he killed Ananias and Sapphira for hoarding their resources. Let's be clear. When God's wrath is conjured to the point that he's striking down his own people, we should pause and take notice. Now, I'm using the word idolatry here very much on purpose, and I'm using it because I think when we think of idolatry, we think of it as this ancient practice where people bow down to these sacrilegious stones. But that's not what idolatry is in Scripture. Idolatry involves God's people identifying a good goal that God wants for them, but then being seduced into an easier way to get it. Consider some of these examples. We see this in the Hebrews in the Old Testament and their idolatry of control. When they return to the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness, Moses and then later Joshua keep repeating this weird command to avoid treaties with neighboring nations. They say God is telling them, don't, don't get into treaties with other nations. Why? What's so bad about treaties? Treaties are a way of just doing international relations. What's the problem? I mean, that's, that's how you get some assurance of protection. You, you form allies all around you. But God didn't want that. He'd always wanted his people in a place of weakness. He wanted Israel vulnerable, trusting only in him, ha having no leverage or power over their neighbors. So what do the Hebrews do when they arrive in the promised land? What's one of the first things they do? They make treaties and intermarry, which is another form of treaty making. How else would we be safe, they probably said. How else are we going to protect ourselves? The Hebrews gave up so quickly on the way of weakness for practicality, a practicality that ultimately leads them to worshiping other gods. They are a reminder to us that those how else questions of practicality are a dangerous way to build our faith. We also see this with Peter and the idolatry of power. Jesus faced a temptation of idolatry. Many of us don't often think about this, but in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus faces satanic temptation directly in the wilderness. In Matthew and Luke, where the counts are a little bit more in-depth, we see Satan's specific temptations, and I think it's important to note that Satan never tempts Jesus not to be the Son of God. What he does tempt Jesus to do is to attain his super-exaltation that's talked about in Philippians 2 through spectacle, jumping off of the temple and being saved, as was expected of the Messiah at that time, and power, taking control of all the kingdoms in the world. Those were Satan's temptations, but Jesus rebukes them. It's interesting, though, that later in Mark 8, and Pastor Leon actually mentioned this in his Easter sermon, we find the satanic temptation rearing its head again, but in a very different form. Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ when Jesus asks his disciples who he is. Other disciples had said Elijah or a prophet, but Peter gets it right. He says that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus affirms him for that and says that because he's the Messiah, he is going to the capital city of Jerusalem to die. Even though his people are being persecuted, even though everyone is expecting him to rise up and rule, even though the disciples who've joined him are expecting him to join him in that rule and success. Peter, probably most especially. And Peter, who had literally just identified Jesus as the Christ, it's said in Mark 8, pulls Jesus off to the side and rebukes him. He rebukes Christ for saying that he would go to Jerusalem to die. Mark's gospel is funny. It's always moving fast. It's always moving quickly. But this is one of those rare moments where in the passage, Jesus is said to have stopped, turned around, looked directly at his disciples, and then said to Peter, get behind me, meaning get back to being my follower, Satan. Jesus isn't tweaking Peter's approach. He's not gently pushing him back on the path. 
he is condemning Peter's temptation to avoid the way of the cross, to avoid death, as satanic. Jesus is saying that the easier way is the satanic way. And then we also see this, of course, in the third and final example of idolatry in Paul and his own prestige. We've talked about this at length. Paul wasn't immune to the temptations of idolatry. He had wrapped his whole life around pursuing power and prestige, and he had to completely start rewiring his brain to start chasing after weakness and humility. And and I have to think that one of the reasons Paul made such a big deal about this is because he knew the grip of idolatry, of power and control, and what it had on his life. And he didn't want the same thing for other Christians. Family, I stress this because if we can all agree that humility is the secret ingredient to so much godly character and virtue that we see in Scripture and to our unity, then I think we have got to acknowledge that the lust for power and control is the toxic root at the base of almost all of our sin. Take an honest look at your sin and our collective sin as a community, and I think you'll be hard-pressed to find an example that can't be traced back to some kind of anti-humility idolatry, some kind of shortcut that prioritizes an easier way to get an otherwise good thing. Again, I'm not going to try to speak to all the applications that this could show. I I think the implications are enormous and and numerous, and I challenge you to think about them in your own lives. Um, But this is is a, a root issue for so many of us that we cannot ignore, and Paul's passage won't let us. Family, in the Gospels, Jesus says outright that whoever humbles himself like a child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says that if we want to become great, we must become a servant of all, just like he did. That is the message of the Christ hymn. Whoever desires to to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. Now, both Jesus and Paul are making something really clear to us. If we want to experience true power and true exaltation, that will come by way of genuine cross-shaped humility. And if we want to have a compelling testimony in the world, as we're going to see in next week's passage in Philippians, and as he speaks to this idea, we have to embrace the supernatural humility of Christ so that we, like him, will be exalted into the heavens and shine like stars, as Paul says in the end of Philippians 2. But let's be really clear. You make Paul's choice. It's not an easy one. There's another famous Pharisee in the New Testament that we learn about, and his name is Nicodemus. Like Paul, he was a prestigious, well-educated, and highly regarded member of the Pharisees. And like Paul, he came face-to-face with Jesus in the famous John 3 passage where we know John 3.16. The question is, how did Nicodemus respond to the interaction with Jesus? Uh, What I've provided is a clip from the show, The Chosen, a show that I've really enjoyed and recommend, um, that portrays this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. I I wondered if I would see this day. Follow me, and you'll see more. Join me and my students. In two days' time, we leave Capernaum. Come see the kingdom I am bringing into this world. But I... I, I You have a position in the Sanhedrin. You have family. You are getting advanced in years. (laughs) I understand. But the invitation is still open. To what exactly? To lead a nomadic life? To to give up who I am? It's true. There is a lot you would give up. But what you would gain is far greater and more lasting. Is this another one of your born-again mysteries? (laughs) Maybe... I know mysteries aren't easy for a scholar. Think about it. 
take your time. On the morning of the fifth day, we leave and we'll meet by the well in the southern quarter at dawn. I am standing on holy ground. <laughs> holy roof. <laughs> I do hope you come with us, Nicodemus. The show does a wonderful job capturing. Nicodemus' story, he is constantly asking difficult questions about what it means to be a Pharisee. He, he's looking for the truth. And in this interaction, we see that on the one hand, he's clearly being confronted by someone who is an emissary from God, a great prophet, maybe even the Messiah himself. Nicodemus doesn't know yet. And it's the fulfillment of everything that he's longed for his whole life training to be a Pharisee. But yet on the other hand, Nicodemus can't even fathom the idea of leaving his curated and successful life. He has comfort. He has a strong social role and a family and status. And to follow an unknown and potentially dangerous man alongside a collection of outcasts and sinners and nomadic life, as he says, that would be unthinkable. And so what does Nicodemus ultimately decide to do? Well, it's revealed in the next episode. everyone. Everyone's here? Yes, this is all of us. Is there anyone else? Look at this. What is that? I don't know. Let's find out. Gold. A friend of mine left that for us. It's enough for two weeks of food and lodging. You came so close. This portrayal of Nicodemus' despair is, I think, riveting and convicting for me and probably for many of us. A lot of us are like him. We know a lot about God's ways, and we have a lot to lose by loving him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so to that end, as we consider the implications of this teaching, I just want to offer three final exhortations to us. First, to the weary. Jesus identifies with you. And I want to be clear. The sermon is not a call to doormat humility. And I, I recognize how it could feel that way, especially for those of us who have suffered a lot and continue to suffer. Humility is not going to look the same for all of us. Some of us are going to give up things in different ways and behave in ways that look a lot different than others in our church. Christian unity, as we know, isn't uniformity. And I invite you to listen to the words of Esau Macaulay as he describes the hope that the black church has found historically in Christ's suffering particularly how it's portrayed in Philippians 2. Macaulay writes, On this side of the passion and resurrection, black anger and pain is answered personally by the truly human one. We found solace in the fact that God responds to black suffering with a profound act of identification with our suffering. What is God's first answer to black suffering and all the wider human suffering and rage that comes with it? It is to enter that suffering alongside us as a friend 
and redeeming. The answer to black rage is the calming words of the word made flesh. The incarnation that comes all the way down, even unto death, has been enough for us to say, yes, God, we trust you. We, the black church, have decided to trust God because he knows what it means to be at the mercy of a corrupt state that cares little for human rights. Are you discouraged, weary? Your hope isn't only for the future. There is a promise of the cross right now, deliverance from the present evil age into God's kingdom. In that kingdom, there is a radical reshuffling of social locations where the first are last and where everyone in the kingdom is reconciled as siblings in Christ. Whatever suffering you face, yes, Jesus can give you the eyes to see it as a light and momentarily affliction, as he says. But we must also understand, especially if we're feeling exhausted, that when God asks us to follow him, even into the unknown, into trials and tribulations, he first identified with you and your hardship and your suffering on his cross. And to the confident, I say, examine your faith with fear and trembling. Take note of the very next verse after the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. Paul's words to the Philippians, caught up in their pursuit of status and prestige, is to examine their faith with fear and trembling. On the one hand, this seems like a pretty clear warning against the destructive outcome that is promised to anybody who spends their life trying to obtain as much power as possible. But on the other hand, and perhaps less clear but equally true, it is an echo of the way Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ crucified. And then he says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but on God's power. Friends, are you confident and sure of yourself? Are you certain that you have, or maybe that you need to have, all of the answers? Are you unwilling to relinquish control of your life due to your fears? Ministry and life in the shape of the cross is the only way that you're going to see God's resurrection power unleashed in your life, not control. We have to embrace and confront, not hide from our limits and our weaknesses. We have to get past trying to put out a strong image of who we are, whether it's in our social media accounts or in the way that we interact with each other. As Paul says, we carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the way, the way the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. By carrying Jesus' death in our bodies, we reveal his life. And so again, to the confident, I say, examine your faith with fear and trembling and consider from where your confidence and your need for control comes from. And then lastly, to all of us, I want to encourage us to run this race with endurance. Um, this past week, a group of us got together to go for a run early in the morning uh, and it was just really good to be out running together as a group, um, keeping our social distance, of course, but just having some time of fellowship. And one of the guys who ran mentioned that, but for the encouragement and accountability of being out with a group, given the pace that we ran and, and how far we ran, if he had tried to do that by himself, he probably would have quit halfway through. Um, and that he found so much encouragement and extra life coming from running together. He, he saw it as fun something that he would have quit if he had tried to do by himself. And so family, I say, don't give up. Don't quit. Not when you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you and guide you and support you. But to do that, you have to acknowledge that you have weaknesses that require help. Let's not get so caught up in the discouragement that comes from our weakness. Let's stop looking so much at the need for power and prestige and comfort and let us instead Fix our eyes on Jesus, as the author of Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that we see all throughout this letter in Philippians as a major theme, who for the joy that was set before him endured this cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Search us and know us. Seek us out. Give us hands that will knock. Give us ears 
that will listen. Give us eyes to see the things that you would have us see, Lord. It's so difficult when all the music and film and work cultures and family heritages have taught us to think that the way to success in this world is through power and control and accomplishment. When you are telling us through the image of your crucified son, that the way to truth and the way to real power is through carrying our own crosses and denying ourselves and following in the footsteps of Jesus. Father, reach into our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel. Help us to see the places where we have just kind of shut down our conscience and accepted ways of living that don't exhibit this pattern of cruciformity. Help us instead, Father, to look for creative ways to empty ourselves and to to embrace our weaknesses, Lord, to confront sin, yes, but to embrace our weaknesses so that your power can work through them. Father, we love you. We cannot do this on our own. And we ask that you would be the source of resurrection power working through our weaknesses, making your strength perfect in our weakness. Amen.